大家晚上好，这里是正在为您直播的。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Hello, dear friends and colleagues. Welcome to the Xi Jinping Challenge. That's how we called it today. Our Merrick's China dispute today is supposed to start from the question: Will top-down leadership achieve political stability in China? Quite a big question, actually. What we have been witnessing in Chinese politics、um, since 2013 is not just a conventional leadership reshuffle with the usual rather constrained shifts of priorities and、um, policies in its wake. Since 2013, the dynamics of Chinese politics have changed significantly. Decision-making powers have shifted to newly created party organs, usually party organs at the center. Political discipline has been enforced through unusually intense and sustained campaigns, and leadership style, structures, and processes have been thoroughly overhauled. And some would call it a Leninist restoration. But this is only part of the story. There are many、uh, new techniques, and that's the interesting part. Many new techniques of exercising power that have not been used before in China's political system. That makes it challenging for the for research and for scholars of China studies, and for the Chinese, and for the Chinese in particular, <laughs> most importantly for them. That's right. So political leaders, with their、um, distinct leadership styles and procedures, they clearly do not explain everything. Everybody knows that. But in the case of Xi Jinping, not even the most ardent structuralists, I'd say, would question that、um, his ascent to power has resulted in major and arguably system-wide changes in China's policy process. So changes in China's leadership system have far-reaching consequences for how China is responding to political. Economic and international challenges, and what we see is a leadership that is more determined and at the same time more rigid. We see less open centrifugal forces than before, and we see more open central authority. Yet we see also much less elasticity in making China's economic restructuring move forward. We see domestic political hardening and a restoration of communist party controls in all walks of life. There's not a trace of political liberalisation or constitutional reform anymore, and these are the issues that we will have to deal with today. As the foundation and as the starting point for our discussion of China's leadership system, we put together a collection of essays. The Merrick's paper on China, the first one actually. It's not just in print; we also put it online, so you can browse there. And my thanks go to the contributors, and they are sitting here in the first row, and also here on the panel. Thank you for coming to Merrick's and to Berlin. You may wonder why we have no mainland Chinese participants on this panel, or mainland Chinese contributors in our booklet. And the invitation process was particularly thrilling this time. I must really say that <laughs> the most thrilling one that I ever had. It has to do with the delicate topic that we're dealing with. We tried hard to bring mainland China scholars to this project, but all of them, even the most internationalized colleagues, declined. They pointed to limited time, to hectic June conference season, etc. Only one colleague gave a more direct, very instructive explanation. He said, "Xi Jinping's leadership style cannot be compared." 只能中与中央
<laughs> so we are not supposed to analyze Xi Jinping's leadership system. We are supposed to be loyal to the party center. No further explanation. This itself actually tells a lot about the current leadership system. A very instructive statement that way. Social scientists, social sciences in China are under really severe stress currently. You can extrapolate that from that. And now I have the pleasure to introduce our distinguished panelists. I will introduce them one by one and will ask them to answer one brief opening warm-up question that is derived from the work each of them contributed to our understanding of China's leadership. And I start with Roderick McFarquhar to my right here. He was the founding editor of the China Quarterly in the early 1960s, still the most important academic journal for China studies. He worked as a successful and very prominent journalist and TV commentator. Then he became a member of parliament in the United Kingdom. And then, I'd say on top of it, he was appointed professor of history and political science at Harvard University and served as the director of Harvard's Fairbank Center. So in your contribution to this um, Marek's paper on China, you use the analytical framework of chairman of the board versus more operative CEOs to explain the differing strategic and operative roles of, of Chinese leaders and to understand the special characteristics of Xi Jinping's approach to leadership. Why is Xi Jinping very different from his predecessors when seen from this perspective? Well, the great chairman of the board was, of course, Mao Zedong. And what I was suggesting by a chairman of the board, which, ignorant of industry and commerce as I am, may not be true of real chairman of the board, but what I'm suggesting by chairman of the board is someone who has the big picture, who is there responsible for the whole company and has to keep his eyes or her eyes on what the members of the staff of the company are doing and making sure that they are making the company profitable. And to do that, you have to have ideas. You have to have a vision. And if Mao had nothing else, he had vision. And China suffered as a result. But Mao was a real ideas man, big picture man. He knew, as he said once, you have to get organized. But he hated bureaucracy, hated it. And he found that the senior leaders under him were always trying to tie him up in bureaucracy, at least that's the way he saw it. And he, however, appointed people he could trust as CEOs, the people who actually ran the country on a day-to-day -day basis. In the case of the chairman, it was Zhou Enlai. He never fully trusted Zhou Enlai, but Zhou Enlai was subservient, he was obedient, and he was never going to challenge the chairman. That was all that mattered. He was loyal. And uh, Zhou Enlai was the CEO who made sure with very little sleep every night that the country actually ran. And he did that right through the Cultural Revolution, which I am sure all of us on this panel would agree he undoubtedly opposed uh, intrinsically. Zhou Enlai, of course, because Mao didn't trust him totally, gave way halfway through Mao's rule as chief operating officer. I use these terms, I hope, not too loosely. Uh, to Deng Xiaoping, because as Mao became obsessed with more ideological moves and movements during the latter part of his, his reign, uh, he needed someone who was going to obey him and agreed with him, and Deng Xiaoping became his chief operating officer. And though uh, operating officer and a CEO sounds as if 
They don't have bigger ideas. And I suspect that Zhou Enlai long since decided that Mao had the big ideas and he would uh, follow them. Deng Xiaoping, Mao realized, was a man who could get the big picture. And that's why he never sacked him from the Communist Party as his wife and her colleagues wanted. Because he knew that he had to play a role in post-Mao China, even though he didn't actually put him in place to do so. Uh, that He knew it would happen. And so we have with Deng Xiaoping, the second figure on Mount Rushmore, uh, someone who emerges as a, from the CEO role into the role of chairman of the board. And again, he has the big ideas. Fortunately for China, much better ideas than Mao's. How do we modernize this country? We open it up. We reform it. And when he dies, he has left behind two people he has chosen, two CEOs he has chosen. And they really do not have the standing to be able to impose their vision on China, except that Jiang Zemin, who many of you will remember, as he came to the end of his term, when all the old folks had died, he began to feel his oats. I don't know if that's an expression in German. Um, but he began to feel that he had a right to have visions. Uh, he had, I think, an unfortunate vision. It was, in effect, to allow the businessmen into the party, which is sort of putting the wolf into the chicken coop, and increase the likelihood of corruption, which is now being combated. Hu Jintao, his successor, was, I think, surprised that he was even a CEO. He was a man, as I put it, truly gray in his eminence, and uh, made no real impact. And now we have Xi Jinping. And as Sebastian has eloquently stated, this is a new ball game. And the difference between him and every previous person, including Mao, is that he wishes to be both chairman of the board and CEO. And that is extraordinary, because as Sebastian said, all the power is being centralized, so that the chairman of the board stroke CEO has got to make enormous numbers of decisions. He is the chairman of every major committee. He has taken a, a chairmanship of a committee, which has, in effect, deprived the prime minister of his normal role of running the economy. The only major committee which he hasn't chaired because it hasn't been formed, and when it's formed, you'll know that something's changing in China, is the Environmental Protection Committee. When that's formed and he's the chair, we'll know that something can be done about Peking's air quality. So what we have now, then, is a man who uh, we didn't expect much of, we didn't know much about before he came into power. We knew he was a princeling, a son of a great revolutionary. But we expected he'd just muddle along like everyone else. And he is determined to transform this country, to make it pure, to wipe out corruption, and uh, to, uh, at the same time, keep it going economically. But the result of his leadership policies Remember what Mao said when uh, Stalin's 60th birthday was celebrated, he said, it's a good thing that Stalin is there, because if he weren't there, who would give the orders? Well, in China today, there's no question. We know who gives the orders. But he can't do everything. And if he's doing 25 things at the same time, the things are going to get screwed up. Thanks, Rod. <clears throat> Richard McGregor on the right-hand side here, started his journalistic career from Australia, where he was also born. 
He served as Beijing bureau chief and also as Washington bureau chief for the Financial Times until 2015. And Richard surprised and impressed China scholars deeply with his carefully researched book, The Party, The Secret World of China's Communist Rulers. This book won several publication prizes and is, in my view, simply the best monograph that has been written so far on the Communist Party as an organization. From 2015 on, Richard has become a free man. As a fellow first of the Wilson Center in Washington, then of the Seeger Center at George Washington University, and we are all anxious to learn what he's planning to do next, but you don't have to tell us today. In your book, you quote this very fine statement by a Chinese interviewee. The Communist Party is like God. It is everywhere, but you cannot see it. Is this statement still valid? as of today, because the Communist Party has become much more visible and operative in many ways um, since um, Xi Jinping took power. What, uh, how would you assess that, Richard? I think it is basically still operative, if you like. I mean, I guess what that pithy statement which uh, a professor at Rendar gave me, at People's University gave me, was just really drilling down on the resolute opacity of the Chinese system and the fact that you have these large... Communist Party departments, you know, the Organization Department, the United Front Department, the Propaganda Department and the like, that feel absolutely no pressure to deal with the public at all. They say they face the government, they don't face the public, why should they even have a listed phone number, etc., etc. So in some respects, you know, to a very well-informed audience like this one, I don't think much in my book would have been a, a surprise at all. But in some respects, I guess the party is more visible now merely because of Xi Jinping. Uh, the opacity, in fact, that respect has paradoxically got worse. Because if you have very weak ministries, if you have a very weak state council and the like, uh, if you have even weaker regulatory agencies, if you have the country, you know, the size and complexity of China increasingly, as it would seem, run by a small kitchen cabinet, in other words, Xi Jinping, uh, the chairman of everything, as, uh, as Rod mentioned, with a, a small group of advisors, some hand-picked technocrats, you know, they're not all party hacks, some people who worked alongside him in Fujian and Zhejiang province, for example. But in many respects, China is a much bigger, much more powerful country, but incredibly even more opaque than it was. I'll push back on, on one issue about, the, not the theme of this conference, but about Xi Jinping. He obviously is an exceptionally different leader from uh, Hu Jintao. You know, we all have our jokes about Hu Jintao, you know, risen without a trace, etc., and, and the like. But Hu Jintao took over a vastly different country than Xi Jinping did. When Hu Jintao took over, China had just joined the World Trade Organization. Nobody really knew that it would be the success that it was. It was the eighth or ninth largest economy in the world. Its military capabilities, much more importantly, were far lesser than they are today. So Xi Jinping certainly took over a much more powerful China, a much bigger China, and a much more military-capable China. In some respects, I don't think the direction has changed. But what is different is that Xi Jinping, you know, far from being sort of captive of consensus, he's driving the consensus. He's much better at putting his mark, particularly on the political side of you know, China, controlling the military, reorganizing the military and the like. Much less successful on the economic side because the sorts of powers that you use in building up the party don't work in a complex right. economy and can't work. Yeah, and can't work in a complex economy. But I, I still find it 
astounding that we still know so little about how decisions are made in China, even though it's so much more important and powerful. Many thanks, Richard. And now I turn to Tony Sage. He's the uh, director of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. His research focuses on governance in China and the interplay between state and society in Asia more generally, and also the piece you contributed to the uh, Merrick's paper on China also deals with this, actually, civil society and state society interaction. Tony advises, as the, the Harvard Kennedy School has as its mission, advises a wide range of government and non-governmental organizations on work in Asia. And as Ash Center Director, he heads several leadership training programs for Chinese and also Indonesian officials. That's a very important part of your um, work at um, the Ash Center. Prior to his positions at the Harvard Kennedy School, that makes Tony especially interesting presently in terms of, in terms of the NGO law <laughs> <laughs> that has been issued. Tony was the chief representative for the Ford Foundation's China office um, from 1994 to 1999, and uh, many of you know that um, the new NGO law took as some kind of starting point to, to kind of control the American organizations such as the Ford Foundation among the NGOs. Tony, I recall several instances um, when you stated that all politics is local, and this also applies to China. Is this assessment still valid under the highly centralized leadership system of Xi Jinping today? There are many indications of local-level paralysis in mm -hmm. China's political system that are also addressed in the Merrick's paper on China. Is this still valid, all politics is local in China? Yes, I think so. Before that, let me just make two other brief comments. On the training, and I think this is indicative of the turn of the Xi Jinping regime, we ran for 13 years training programs for pretty senior Chinese government officials. And in a speech at the Central Party School in uh, January this year, Xi Jinping said it was no longer necessary to learn from overseas, and he cited Singapore and America, and so all the programs have been canceled. But talking about things being local, the next thing that happened, of course, is that Shanghai came and sought me out and said, well, you know, we can't come to you anymore, but would you come to Shanghai and teach us in Shanghai? So where there's a will, there's always a way. Uh, I would say one thing in defense of Hu Jintao. I don't think he was a complete waste of time and disaster. I think he did a tremendous amount of work in terms of putting in social support, social relief in China, which I think is extremely underappreciated by a lot of people outside of China in terms of what he did. Now, coming to your question, what I'd actually stressed was that where the Chinese Communist Party has been successful is where it was good at local politics. And where, by contrast, it was unsuccessful was where it tended to use ideological diktat to try and shape local realities to fit what Zhong Nanhai or the, the center of the Chinese Communist Party thought should be happening. So in that context, you know, Xi Jinping's dream becomes important. Is it something that would resonate at the local areas, or is it trying to change reality and shape reality for people at the local levels in a way that they're not ultimately going to accept? There, I think you have to make a big distinction between those in the party and people just getting on with their ordinary lives. And there's no doubt that, as you said, in fact, a lot of local party organizations have been in a state of paralysis. In part, that's because Xi Jinping has clearly changed the rules of the game. He's changed the rules of the game at the center, where there used to be a balance between factions, 
different families could look after different sectors within the economy or in other parts of society. And he's broken that apart. But I think the problem is that no one quite knows at the moment what the new rules of the game are. And that's what's leading to the sort of paralysis that I think you see at a lot of the local level. Over time, my suspicion is it's going to revert back to normal practices, that people will warp and shape central directives, central practices to suit the way they want to work at the local level. So I think where local party officials are able to produce a kind of symbiosis between what they're hearing from the center and what the reality is on the ground, then I don't think there's going to be too much problem. Other areas, I think one's likely to see friction. But I think on the broader theme, this is the last thing I'll just say, I think that with this top-down approach, you could see it being successful in certain areas. But I think it also provides key conflicts or contradictions, if you like. Uh, I'll only mention a couple uh, because of time. I mean, one is they're talking about wanting a meritocratic party. At the same time, they're talking about Wang Yi Zhongyang. You know, you have to be faithful to the center. So can you really get the best and the brightest coming up through the Communist Party in a meritocratic sense, a la Daniel Bell, when at the same time, you know, you're having this sort of overriding appeal to loyalty? That seems to me that's going to be a potential breaking point. Another example I would say is generally in the realms of why do people become members of the party and what do they want to get out of the party? And again there, as I think Rod mentioned, the, the stress on doing it Xi Jinping's way is probably not why many people are in the party. And, uh, you know, for many, it's a vehicle to achieve other ends. And uh, again, over time, that's going to pull. And also, as Rod said, Jiang Zemin did bring in the wolf. And it's even a more significant problem than that, because if you will not allow alternative political organizations to grow around the Communist Party, you finish up having to import new social forces and new social elements into the party just to stop them challenging that party. And what you do in that process is conflicts, tensions within society. You've now basically imported them into the party. And so the party becomes a battleground for a whole range of different issues. So I think those are some of the things in terms of the broader theme that you, you started off with of this can the top-down work, things that are going to kind of pull at it beyond just the localism that I think is still very strong. What about this proposition? It's apologetic. Xi Jinping has to do it that way. He has to centralize power in order to release forces in the economy in the future. And there's a lot of people in China and also abroad trying to propose this kind of explanation for what is going on. Is this credible? I think that the phrase is that he's turning turning left to turn right. Is right, this right? is exactly words, what so some people say. Right, consolidates exactly. his base before right. releasing other energies in the economy. Exactly. Barry. By the time he's devastated that those areas. <laughs> well, I think from his perspective, and this goes back to what you said at the beginning, was that I think when he was anointed to take over, I mean, I think he decided it's the politics, stupid. That the, the, from his perspective, things look so bad unless they really got a grip on things, if they really, unless they really tried to turn the party into a more unified fighting force, they could well go under. And so I could see from his perspective the logic of wanting to do that. 
in terms of what he saw uh, facing them. But he's now kind of left with the problem that um, if you don't follow me, we go under. And that seems to me, you know, extremely problematic uh, over the long term. And as I just said before, you know, we saw this in the end of the 1980s with Zhao Ziyang, with the arguments around Xin Chuan Wei Zhui, you know, neo-authoritarianism. Give Zhao Ziyang all the power, he will break through these difficult barriers, and then he'll let it all go. And I think historically, what we know is once you accrete power to yourself, it's very difficult to let it go again. And I think not because of you, it's because of all the people who are dependent on your power underneath you. So if I'm in Xi Jinping's patron clear network, the last thing I want that guy to do is start releasing power. And so the pressures on him to keep holding that power and gripping that power, I think, are extremely strong. Who can he rely on, actually? Because he's sometimes talking about people that, in my view, don't exist in China anymore. <laughs> the kind of clean and honest and upright and selfless officials I have not met many. There are some. But well, they, but they revived the, the legend of Lei Fang. Exactly. Um, the is, this, is it a revolutionary romantic or what is this? It is a cultural revolution. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mao had an easy one. He said, uh, make revolution. To revolt is okay. And you go out, be violent with all the people that you've been antagonistic towards. And the students went and did it. This guy's trying to make the whole of China honest. Mm. or at least the party. And if the party's honest, presumably everyone else has to be honest because they've got no officials to bribe. <laughs> mm. So it's just not going to happen. I think there's a deeper problem than that in the sense that if you think about reforms in the 80s, which were also dramatic, you could see clearly who were going to be winners in that process and why a coalition could come together to push it ahead against opposition. In the 90s, when Deng Xiaoping went walkabout in southern China, you could see again a kind of, you know, an interest amongst party officials, military, that would gain from those policies and push it ahead. It's much harder for me to see who is that coalition now, given the vested interests that are steeped in the system as it operates at the moment, who are going to want to break that system, you know, as it is operating now. And, and as I just said before, it's more or less then coming down to, well, if you don't go along with me, there's the chance we could all go under together. I mean, did, but Richard, did, what, the well, I, I just wonder, if, I, mean, did, I don't know, does Xi Jinping look back to past Chinese leaders like Mao and Deng in different ways and saw, you know, if you want to get something done, you better sort of become an authoritarian leader because that's how you get stuff done. I mean, you know, Tony is right to pull us up on cheap shots about Hu Jintao. You know, he's the only leader I know who's presided over 10% growth for 10 years and being considered a failure. But nonetheless, you know, I think there was a stasis in the system under him. All sorts of powerful families either built up or consolidated their power or their bailiwicks in that time. To undo that requires, frankly, authoritarian powers. You're not going to do it through the antitrust mechanism or a court or something. <laughs> I'll say one other thing that people have brought up I'll, a slightly different view on, you know, this idea that letting the private sector into the party was uh, you know, letting the wolf into the whatever. Of course, it's a contradiction, but if you'd left the private sector outside of the party, that would have been an even bigger contradiction. So in some respect, I think co-opting the private sector, as perverse as that is, I think was kind of a masterstroke, actually. It might unravel down the track, but I, I, I it's think... It's already unraveled down the track, because as the various stories by various journalists, including yourself, uh, have shown, 
it is these businessmen who are giving shares to Xi Jinping's relatives and yeah. everyone else that they can find who's willing to put them in their pocket. But there's also, you know, very entrepreneurial, very successful, very profitable private companies, that global private companies, some of which obviously pay off officials in China that do it get ahead or smooth the path or whatever. Well, but, they are seen as national champions. And then now, if, yeah. we, if, yeah. we accept, if we accept Nick Lardy's figures, you know, it's 70% of output. I know, I know there's a lot of ways of defining private sector in China and all that sort of thing. But that's pretty amazing. That that's why it's so difficult for him to run the country from one place. Well, that's right. I, you know, I, in economic policy, I don't think he shows, even f from living in Fujian and Zhejiang, any sense of economic policy. He's got too much on his plate. You can't mobilize the, an economy in China anymore like you can mobilize the party or mobilize the anti-graft bureau or whatever. It just doesn't work. There's another take there. He can't rely on the private sector to support growth, to invest in times of uncertainty, so he must rely on state enterprises, and this is exactly what he does now. So it, it's, it appears to be a kind of restorative tendency, but actually it's about reliability. The only guys who invest in these times in a serious way are state enterprises. Well, so politically, invest, but abroad. that's true. Private enterprise, they, they are passive or leave the country. So they vote with their feet, actually, but, but state enterprises can't do that. So they are the only reliable force in the... Well, you need, you need someone to invest who's not going to make money. <laughs> to, ma to make yeah, up for the investment. But, but then um, we talked about these restorative aspects that are there, the Leninist party center back again and concentrating power in party organs and stressing um, state enterprises again. These things seem to be rather retro, rather restorative to a certain extent. But there are new aspects to this um, exercise of power under Xi Jinping. And this is also in the, the quite interesting. I think many authors, um, contributors to the, to the essay collection, stressed that very much, that um, in terms of public communication, for example, he's clearly, it's not just the, the traditional cult or something of personality. This is much more refined. It's geared towards social media. What do we make out of that, the political communication aspect of, um, of his rule? This is modern, isn't it? I think that there's, there's a couple of different aspects to that. I mean, the first is that new social media, I think, caught the party on the hop for a while in the sense that if you think about the traditional organization of information in the Chinese system, it's through vertical hierarchies. And as I've said a number of times before, the most valuable commodity in China is information and its secrets which are traded in China and so on and so forth. So having a fast mechanism that kind of links horizontally was a shock. But I do think subsequently the party has shown not just through, you know, the things we make fun of, the 50 cent uh, followers and so on, that it's actually been very adept at uh, getting information out, at getting its word over. And surveys that we've done show that uh, majorities of the population still believe official Communist Party sources over unofficial sources online. So they're doing something uh, right there. Interesting, one of our PhD students, she was doing work on uh, environment. And what she's found is it actually doesn't matter if the local government does anything about the environmental problem, as long as they reply that we're going to do something. And the, you know, their support for the local government goes up and stays very high, even if the problem is not resolved at all. There's one proposition, another one, that the, the, this kind of Leninist approach 
to controlling, to shaping public opinion or creating a positive public opinion might be very much 21st century, actually, because that's what a Chinese scholar recently told me. You in the West, you don't take the destructive power of social media seriously. Social media will tear apart all your institutions that you have in the West. And they would do the same in China. And we have the means already. We are developing the means to counter that, to contain that tendency. And that's what you will need too. What are we making out of that? Maybe the 21st century requires kind of new modes of governance that are much less loved by us, but much more effective, stable. I don't know. Maybe it's a very good point. We should turn off Twitter till after the presidential election, <laughs> including Donald Trump's account. But I think that Tony alluded to this. I mean, I think we can all laugh at Chinese attempts to control social media, public opinion through it and the like. That's not the real story. The real story is how well they've done, frankly in harnessing and channeling public opinion. And they've done that, in, you know, obviously in a crude fashion. You know, they lock the odd person up here or there, embarrass somebody here or there, a few of the big Vs and the like on Weibo. But the real story is not how club-footed they are. It is how successful they've been in channeling something which everybody said would be the death of the Communist Party, most famously Bill Clinton. So... Can that go on forever? Can the Communist Party go on forever? The other day we asked a very prominent Chinese economist, you know, why on earth do you still have five-year plans? And I think he said, well, the Soviet Union had 13 five-year plans, didn't they? And they didn't have any more after that, so we better keep going. Um, so I don't know what's going to happen, but I think the real story still is that China has been much more successful in controlling social media than any of us ever thought they would be. The most surprising development under Xi Jinping for me was the restructuring, the reorganization of the military, because this required really big courage. So no doubt, to me at least, Xi Jinping is a courageous man. He um, hasn't achieved it yet, he's a but, but he he's risks. really why, right? He's even taken a gamble to a certain extent, because this is really, they are state in a state in many ways, most of the military regions, for example, and he dared to attack them to reorganize them, to, to, to take away their power base. Isn't this an indication of a great leader? It's an indication of a risk taker, that's for sure. I mean, the first thing he did with the military, as you remember, I think it was 13 or 14, he had these 18 leaders, generals, all it had little paragraphs in the People's Daily saying, we salute you, we salute the right, party. Right. That was a, you know, Mao never needed that. That was a sign of weakness, meant to be a mm. sign of strength. He had to have them publicly stated. The other day, of course, he appeared in a, in a uniform with a new title. He's sort of uh, rivaling Mao's general, Zhu De, as being the general of all the generals. And uh, I think that there is a limit to the way uh, the Chinese military, even the modernized military that you have now, accept that. You remember that when Hua Guofang fell, the most biting comment came when they said, and of course, he never should have been head of the military commission. Mm. You know, Central Committee, Politburo, right, right. fine, but mm. the military commission, that's sacred. And so I think until we see whether or not he actually damages the military, the, the personal interests of high military, we won't know whether he's actually got the military right. behind didn't, him. Didn't he do that with uh, Xu Zaihong? Oh, yes, he's certainly gone for a couple of people. But what we've got in the party at the moment, I would suggest, Richard, is a sense at the top that um, we don't know when they're going to come for us. And if the corruption is as widespread as uh, Xi Jinping and his predecessors have all said, they will come for them. 
And the question is, when will the generals begin to feel as representatives of an institution that the institution's at threat? And uh, I think what we here see is perhaps some distinction between the, the army, which was notably corrupt, and the more high-techy Navy and Air Force. Right, the emerging power centers. Victor, what about factions and factionalism? Are there still factions left? What is their role? Does Xi Jinping, has he done away with them? I, I think similar to Mao, Xi Jinping has tried to eliminate uh, these pockets, and this is what also what Rod was saying earlier, of independent kingdoms. And the reason why the Hu Jintao administration was a failure because it allowed all these Duli Wanguo independent kingdoms to, to emerge, and they were quite Duli, right? So Zhou Yongkang ran this entire security oil apparatus all on his own, and the oil sector was disobeying, you know, decrees from the state council and maybe even from the party center. And I think it, it does make sense for Xi Jinping to want to get rid of these independent kingdoms. And I think to a large extent, Xi Jinping has succeeded. To be sure, there are still factions which either were so entrenched in the system like Jiang Zemin's faction and also, or just didn't really do very much wrong like Hu Jintao's, the remaining followers of, of uh, Hu Jintao. But I think even here, we're hearing rumors or suspicion that you know one of Hu Jintao's uh, key lieutenants, Li Yuanchao, could well be in trouble because his subordinates have all been arrested, basically all these Jiangsu guys and, and so on and so forth. So but that's a long-time rumor already. He could be, yeah, it's, not, it's not even a rumor, it's just right, an yeah. empirical fact that right, right. all the, the, the child's followers right. are, you know, have, yeah. there are some right. who are not in jail yet. Right. So maybe he'll get there, maybe by the 19th Party Congress, there, there will not be. But, but then I, I would say, the only observation I say is, you know, Mao sort of tried to do this during the Cultural Revolution, is to get rid of, obviously, most of the factions that could challenge him. But even then, there's a limit, right? You, you, you can't... Ultimately, you have to outsource something in authoritarian regime, right? So if somebody is in charge, if somebody's controlling, you know, divisions in, in the military or the state council, one person cannot literally run a country of 1.3 billion people. And the basic problem in authoritarian regime is then, as long as you do that, there is information asymmetry, right? So that the person that you have entrusted the task of controlling different parts of the government can turn against you. The big problem for Mao was Lin Biao, and Mao even needed uh, an extra faction, the Fourth Front Army, to balance against Lin Biao's people, supposedly his most trusted lieutenant. And so a problem may develop between Xi Jinping and his current group of trusted lieutenants. So even after all the other factions, previous factions are gone, new cleavages, new distrust can emerge. And that's just a fundamental feature of authoritarian politics. I, I don't think Xi Jinping can overcome that. Okay. This is Victor Schur of the University of California in San Diego. And now Joe, Joseph Hughes-Smith of Boston University. Joe, could you say something more optimistic about this <laughs> no. leadership setup? Because you had the, the task for the essay collection, actually the, the kind of negative scenarios there. But... Um, there were some qualifications there, some, some warnings that it might last longer than many people assume. Well, somewhat facetiously, I've always adopted the Cixi Taiho model, <laughs> that the system doesn't collapse until Xi Jinping has been mm. deceased for three years, which suggests that uh, he's still presumably young and in good health. Uh, he could go for another 20 years or so. 62. He's 62 now, right? Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah. okay, another, but in good shape, another yeah. 20 years, another 30 mm -hmm. years uh, <laughs> with good medical care. Yeah. I think that there's a 
a really a, a serious point here, which is both Jiang Zemin and, and Hu Jintao in their own ways really helped Xi Jinping rise to power. Uh, Jiang Zemin and Zeng Qinghong as his primary backers, and Hu Jintao got rid of Bo Xilai, did the dirty work, uh, stepped down from the uh, military commission, however willingly or not willingly, whatever that is. And so how did Xi Jinping repay them? He went after all their top lieutenants. So who's he going to turn power over to knowing that that new person is going to go after him? I think that you would have to find the stupidest, most pliable person in the kingdom. And I think she might be even too smart to do that. So I just don't see him giving up power. And the question is going to be what type of model he adopts and whether in adopting that he stretches the rules of this somewhat stretchable system beyond the breaking point. And if the economic system remains as broken as Barry says it is now, uh, this is a system that it could be in some very, very serious trouble. Barry, is the economy broken or economic policy broken? Yeah, I, I just said the decision-making so far, policy so far. But I, I wonder if I could... Barry Norton, University of California, San Diego also. Shift terms just a little bit. I, I mean, there's a sort of negative consensus formed here, which I'm very much part of, so I completely agree. <coughs> but let me build a question on that. If I think about some of my students from China, who were, if they were sitting here in the audience, they would be shaking their heads. They would be saying, you foreigners, you know, you don't get it. You are so negative. My personal experience as a young Chinese person would be life is better than it has been. Xi Jinping has come in. He's cleaned stuff up. Many of them would have stories that go along the lines of, well, in the enterprise where my parents work, there was some guy that everybody knew was a corrupt and a bad dude, and he's gone. So in other words, they would say the anti-corruption campaign, as far as we're concerned, has been working. And they would say, Xi Jinping's dream means something to me. They would say, you foreigners, you just don't get it. What are we missing? Okay, many thanks. So I think we have reached our time limit now. Many thanks to the panelists for these very astute judgments of the situation in China. It's kind of negative, but we will correct that in the next few days, I think. Many thanks to the panelists. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.